Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1944 Preston Sturgis film, Hail the Conquering Hero. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing great, Sam. Barrett, um, this was a movie that I didn't know what to expect. And I my big takeaway from this is that I think I love Preston Sturgis. Um, I this was so much fun um, to watch and fun to think about. You know, it's, it's one of those movies that I think at first glance, you could say, Oh, this is just like a, it's just a funny movie and it just sort of feels light and it does feel light. You kind of move through it, but there's a lot to chew on in this movie uh, in this movie as well. So to start off with, what is your history with this film in particular? Well, you know, I, I first met Preston Sturgis uh, kind of accidentally. I may have told the story when we did Sullivan's travels, but um, when I taught a course, gosh, almost 20 years ago now on spiritual autobiography, there was a Frenchman by the name of Jean Sullivan, and he took the name Sullivan from Sullivan's Travels. I think he liked that juxtaposition of drama and, and comedy. So that was my first discovery of Preston Sturgis. And I started reading about you know this phenomenon between 1940 and 1944. He makes some of the best comedies, Hollywood comedies of all time. So then I picked up the Sturgis collection, which has all the films he did for Paramount, uh, and Hail the Country Hero is there. So I probably watched it on DVD, um, gosh, it's probably been about 15 years or so ago, and I hadn't seen it since. So it was really kind of fresh for me. There was an awful lot about the film I actually did not remember. So, uh, so it was a great, great to revisit it. Do you remember your first impression of it? I mean, maybe watching it in yeah, along with some of these other Preston Sturgis movies? Yeah, I, I, I liked it a lot. I, I thought it was one of his better films. Uh, I remember liking the fact that William Demarest, who is in his usual stable of actors, he made nine films with Sturgis. Um, this is definitely Demarest. He's the Sergeant Helfinger. Uh, this is definitely Demarest's biggest role, and I remember really liking him a lot. I remember liking Eddie Bracken, even though people have said kind of negative things about Eddie Bracken. I thought he was kind of perfect for the uh, for the role. Um, so yeah, my I mean, my only experience with Preston Sturgis is well, two two things is uh, watching Sullivan's Travels, which I loved, um, and definitely the fact that the Cohn brothers love Preston Sturgis as well, and and then that that. I can see so many elements. I, I, I can watch him and be like, oh, I see what they love. And I see where they have at moments put these things in. Um, I mean, they're, the uh, the opening of, of Sullivan's Travels has uh, pretty early in that film, there's this great boardroom scene. Um, and I just remember the dialogue being so fast and so funny and coming from all these different directions. And as I was watching this, I was reminded of, oh yeah, that's what I'm in store for as this movie gets started. It's like, I'm going to get a whole movie full of this kind of conversation, this kind of dialogue. And I, and it's just, um, my, my wife came in as I was rewatching this. Um, I watched it twice this week. Uh, she came home from school and sat down at the end and I was so disappointed. I'm like, oh, you've already missed like all of these great scenes. So it's like, it's like, cause I feel like, like a lot of the, the, like, um, heavy Preston Sturgis overlapping dialogue inner inner interweaving happens in the first probably two thirds of the film. Mm -hmm. And she saw the last third and I was like, oh this movie's so much better than what you just saw. Uh because because she missed it there. Um we've been watching a lot of movies about uh folks returning from war. Mm -hmm. Uh this is our, our third in that stretch, you know, two of them um uh, the Best Years of Our Lives, and It's a Wonderful Life from 1946. Um, but this was made in the thick of the war, which is really 
interesting. So this film, just to give some context to this, because I think this is important as we think about this movie. So this film debuted on August 9th, uh, 1944, which is, you know, just over two months after D-Day. And we're still 16 days away from the liberation of Paris. Like that's when this movie comes out. We're eight months away from VE Day, 12 months away from VJ Day. It's fascinating <laughs> to think about like he's already, Sturgis is already thinking about the idea of coming home, uh, both comedically and satirically. This is a pretty biting movie as well. And it, um, I wonder what this movie must have been like I mean, I, I read some some contemporary reviews of it, but what's how this must have played to people whose fathers or husbands or sons or brothers were off fighting in the war. Did you have any sense of that in, in the stuff you read? Well, yeah, yeah, it, it it is fascinating to me that the movie landed so well. Um, you know, I read Bosley Crowther's uh, contemporary review in the New York Times, and you know, Crowther was the most eminent uh, film critic of the time. And uh, and he he was not a man that uh, that was often praised films unconditionally, and he praised this film unconditionally, and it tells me something about um, about the American psyche at the time that there was a lot more um, flexibility of thinking about the war. I mean, you know, we look back on it uh, from our vantage point as the greatest generation. Uh, Everybody was caught up in patriotic fervor. And, you know, Sturgis was canny enough to kind of put his finger on the fact that not everybody was of the same mind. And, I mean, to me, Sam, it kind of goes along with the conversation we had last week about why why did Best Years of Our Lives uh, do so well and It's a Wonderful Life comparatively didn't. And, I mean, It's a Wonderful Life did okay, but it certainly didn't do what it was. And one of the things he talked about was well, maybe people were actually ready, more ready for a bit of realism uh, than, than we give them credit for. And I think that's, that's, that's what Sturgis has somehow found. And of course, he does it in a way that he takes a lot of the sting out of it um, because these people are just silly enough that you can think to yourself, that's not my hometown. Those are not the people I know. But they're serious enough so you can actually, I mean, there's never any disrespect shown to the Marines. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, the idea that his father is a genuine hero, the idea that these guys coming back from Guadalcanal are, are they, they themselves are genuine veterans. He never pokes a pin in that, um, but he, he pokes a pin into a kind of, you know, kind of a faux patriotism, kind of an unthinking jingoism um, that part of me thinks that the audience of the time got that. And part of me thinks maybe there's some of the audience of the time that didn't even get that, didn't even realize they were, they were, they were, they were being, being satirized. But he, he I, 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 so I think he manages to, to kind of have it both ways in that sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, it's, it's interesting to think about this movie kind of playing in like middle America, because I, I feel like there's, there's degrees to which, like you said, it is sort of making fun of that, but it's easy to also, if you're, I think, you know, somebody sitting in middle America watching this is you can be like, Oh, look at how silly some people yes. are. Yeah, it's right. like, it's, it's not about you. It's about clearly these people mm -hmm. are get swept up in this. They get caught up in this. Um, this movie, uh, reminds me of another piece of art that I love a lot. It, uh, it shares a lot of, of similar energy to it. And that is my favorite musical is Meredith Wilson's The Music Man. Mm. And I feel like this shares a lot of energy with that. I mean, it's different because in The Music Man, Harold Hill is this con man and he is like uh, driving a lot of the lies that he tells, but you get the town sort of swept up in the, the, the sort of uh, excitement about this. In this movie, 
uh, I find it so interesting that Woodrow he initiates. I mean, he, the 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 original sin, the original lie, perhaps is Woodrow's, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Unless we want to think that that Woodrow is swept up in larger lies about about heroism or at least myths about heroism. But but the original lie is from him. But then the rest of the movie is him saying no. Um, so it's it's like he is he is unintentionally the Harold Hill figure instead of being intentionally the con man. It's like he's at the center of this, but he's not. Um, but he's not driving it. He's constantly trying to be like, can we just, can we stop this? And, and and everybody around him is making it worse. But just in terms of like the energy around the town, even the like cast of characters, I was saying to my wife, this would be such a fun stage play because there are so many good parts in it. Mm. You know, like whether you're, uh, I think about the mayor and the mayor's wife is a great part and Forrest is a great part and the judge is a great part and Doc Bissell's a great part and then the Marines are a great part. Like this would this this would actually work really well. Um, I think it would be hard to put on because I think comedy's hard, but this this would be, I think would be a really great stage play. Well, actually, it's, it's interesting you say that for two reasons, Sam. One is that um, Sturgis got his start as a screenwriter. I mean, as a, play, as a playwright. Um, his big success was a 1929 Broadway play called Strictly Dishonorable that ran for two years. Uh, I've never seen it. I really don't know anything about it. But he made $300,000 off of it, which in Depression America was a lot of money. And that led to him being hired by uh, by the studios in, in Hollywood. Um, ultimately, he was making $3,200 a week uh, at the end of the Depression. Um, but also what you say about writing all these great small parts um, – Sturgis was known, and this is one of the reasons why he and Paramount parted ways, uh, Sturgis was known for uh, this kind of regular cast of characters. So, you know, I already mentioned William Demarest being in nine of his um, movies, but then you get other guys like Al Bridge, who plays the political boss, um, Jimmy Conlon, who plays the uh, the judge, Franklin Pangborn, who plays the committee chairman. I mean, these are people that when you watch a Sturgis film, they are part of the Sturgis universe. And um, the, the studio didn't like that. The studio said, you know, people are going to get tired of seeing the same faces over and over. Uh, and Sturgis said, no, I have kind of a moral responsibility to cast these people. And, uh, and that's what I love about a Sturgis film. I love the way he plays... Um, he rings changes on these various characters. And one of his regulars, I can't remember which one it is, but his character's name, no matter which Sturgis film he's in, is always Schultz. Sometimes mm-hmm. he's Dr. Schultz, sometimes, or it's Torben Meyer. Sometimes he's Mr. Schultz, but he's always Schultz. And so, so you get these great kind of inside jokes when you, when you watch a lot of Sturgis films. Well, and another thing you said, you know, uh, the studios would be uh, we're, we're worried about people getting tired of the same faces. Part of what these folks have, too, are great faces. Yes. You know, I think about Jimmy Conlon's face as the judge and it's like that is not a movie star's face, but that is such a great face. You know, so many of these people. Um, so so even in crowd shots, it's like I want to pause pause the crowd shots and look for these different faces. Um, and I think that's that's definitely something as a director and as as somebody who's thinking about this stock company like that he gets is like, oh, you want to see that face again. And and you want to see that person cast in this other thing, which makes it feel more like a play, too. Right. You have this company of actors and they can play these different parts as you're watching these watching these films. And great and great voices too. I, I love Jimmy Conlon's voice. I love Al Bridges' voice. I mean, these people are there. I mean, they're almost like out of a, a, a an Orson Welles radio company in, in mm-hmm. a way. He also got in a big fight with the uh, with the studio over Ella Raines as Libby. Um, they really didn't want her. He cast her, and they didn't want her. 
Uh, and I think when you talk about faces, one of the arguments was she was too pretty for a play, for a hometown girl. But he stuck to his guns and he said, no, you know, I've offered her the part and I'm not going to back down. And as I said, ultimately, that was the end of his association with Paramount. This was his last Paramount film. And his career was really never the same after that. Well, and you mentioned this, but I think it is important to note from 1940 to 1944, in those five years, he makes eight movies. He writes and directs eight movies in that time, three screenwriting um, uh, Oscar nominations, two in 1944 alone. So this uh, this is one of those two. So um, such a, a wildly productive time period for him. And, and actually, if you're alert, when he and the, uh, when Eddie Bracken and the sailors come out of the bar, right, there's a poster behind them for A Miracle of Morgan's Creek, which was actually playing at the time that he was shooting this film, and that also has Eddie Bracken in it. That's all. That's great. I didn't. I didn't see that, but I read about it. But I, I love. I love things like that. Um, one of the things that I noticed watching this um, was how important of a role music plays in this. I mean, it is obviously not a musical, but 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 there's a lot of um, diegetic music in this uh, because you have the bands, and it opens on a. It opens on a. Um, on a musical number, um, and we see how uh, throughout the throughout the movie there's like there are songs that are repeated and they help to um i don't know set the tones for things so so the movie o the movie opens with uh this nightclub scene where she is singing um home to the arms of mother which we hear repeated and that's i mean one of the things that this movie's about is sort of the cult of the mother and you see these guys in the San Francisco bar weeping as she's singing about this and and Woodrow's like can't they play something gay can't they like can't they do something I mean he he's just in pain listening to this this song which then will will cycle back throughout um you also get the the marines hymn um mm -hmm. which I love because people keep inadvertently quoting it it's like it's like all that they know about the marines is the halls of montezuma and the shores of tripoli like those just keep coming up you know it which also feels a little um coenzy to me like this thing sets a, some phrasing early and then people just keep repeating that phrasing um i i really love that and then finally the we want woodrow song becomes this sort of rallying cry so you even hear it You'll hear it in scenes where you don't see it. It's just like you know, outside people are singing this thing, and that is an earworm of a song. Like I just in my head, it, that's just sort of playing in my head for the last two days. Yeah, and that and that, that of course was Sturgis's own composition. He he wrote two of the songs, and that was one of the two that he wrote. Um, and then we get musically, we get the great scene of the homecoming uh, rally where we have the four different marching bands and the committee chairs trying to organize them. And they're having this debate about who gets to play what song and in what order. And when um, the mayor is talking, he keeps inadvertently cueing the songs like he'll say, you know, he's home to the arms of his mother. And then they start playing or. Yeah. And it's just like it's such a great like like the just the overall comedy of that is is great and i'm used to seeing something like that on a smaller scale maybe like an abbott and costello kind of mm -hmm. thing where it's like two people and they have the timing down but this is a huge ensemble scene that has all of this overlapping stuff and and it's like everybody gets to get in on the fun um 
which I, I just I think is uh, it, it, I, I kind of love about it. I mean, I, one of the things I was reading about Sturgis said like all of his characters have something they desperately want to say, and all of them want to say it at the same time. And it's like <laughs> that is the feeling of a movie like this. Yeah, I love uh, Monty Python's Terry Jones uh, called this a wonderful uh, a wonderful piece of clockwork, which I think is a great description of it because um, you know it, every once in a while you kind of step back and say how is he how is he kind of coordinating all this all this chaos the the idea of organizing chaos is uh is is what strikes you about about this film and it's like it could it could fly out of control at, at any moment but it never does it's just it's just wonderful to watch it uh him hold it together as it threatens to fall apart so as I was thinking about how to talk about this, I was kind of going through and pulling out some themes that I think are uh, core to this or interesting to think about this. Um, so the big one comes right from the title is kind of the the idea of heroism or maybe the myth of heroism um, and sort of how, how central that is. One of the things um, that I found interesting about this movie, you mentioned how, you know, he doesn't, how the Marines are real Marine, like, like they're like, he doesn't sort of, try to stick a pin in them to pop their them in any way at the same time when we're first introduced to the marines they are basically walking through this town having all lost their money at craps so it's just like so he's like oh these are also you know maybe you might question their moral character or something you know that they are they're basically penniless uh and one of them has saved 15 cents so they're all the six of them are going to split a beer um so so you know, we we get this this picture of yes, the, these Marines are viewed as heroic, and um, and Woodrow is this like false hero. But it's like, well, I'd love to know more about their story because even we learned about like one of their medals they got because um, the guy smelled the the enemy roasting a pig and he went and stole the pig from them and he got a medal for that. So there's always this stuff of like, well, are they are they? Re I mean, obviously they. They they really did fight in fight in this in this war fight in Guadalcanal, but there's they're also at the edges. You're kind of wondering about them a little bit. You know, I, I think one of the things that Sturgis is saying about that, um, Sam, is because I because I don't think as I said earlier, he kind of has his cake and eat it too. Because there's there's a real hero. You know, there's no doubt that his father is a hero. So World War One has heroes in it. And yet he's undermining the contemporary heroes the way you're describing. So I think one of the things, and, and of course you have that wonderful litany at the beginning when Woodrow reels off all the battles the Marines have been in. I just, I, that, that's, a, that's a tour de force. But I think one of the things that Sturgis might be saying is, um, let's not be quick to decide who is or isn't a, a hero. Because I think the World War I perspective, that's, I think he's looking back at the father and he's saying he, he was heroic. But if we're in the middle of a war right now, it might be too early to tell who is or isn't a hero. And let's not be too quick to make that judgment. So I think that's I think he's saying something about that kind of um, historical distance in making judgments about things. And I think he's he's concerned about making these decisions in the middle of a war about who is or isn't the hero, because we really don't have the kind of distance we, we need on that. Right. I mean, Doc Bissell has this uh, this line where he says, "If all good men wore medals, it would be easier to tell the good ones from the bad." And it's like, well, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yes. Uh, there's also when they get into the bar, the great the great um, scene where he's he offers the um, the elk's tooth, and he's trying to <laughs> sort of sell this as this like relic of of the war. And then the the waiter just keeps pulling out other things. It's like, <laughs> would you like the flag he was buried in? 
he was buried in. And then he's like, or would you like another one? And he's like, here's a piece of a Japanese submarine. If you turn it around, it's a piece of a German submarine. And it's, it, it reminds me of, um, of Erasmus and Luther critiquing medieval relics where it's like, huh? Okay. Well, yes, these are all real, but are they? Um, so, so it also gives you this picture that like clearly San Francisco is kind of over it a little bit in terms of everybody coming home, treat, mm. having to treat them in a kind of way. Um, but when you get to, to Oak Ridge, all of a sudden it's like, well, they haven't had anybody return yet. So it's like, it's, it's fresh territory for, for people to return home. Um, I also think about uh, the, the Sarge telling war stories. So mm. the first war story we hear him tell is the story of Woodrow's father, Hinky Dick, mm. right? If you pay attention to him telling that story, it sure sounds a lot like the stories he tells later on when he's making up stories about Woodrow. And he even says to Woodrow at, at, at one moment about telling stories, he's like, he even admits he can't even remember what's true anymore or not. So I even I mean, I don't think that he's trying to undercut uh, Woodrow's father. At the same time, there is this sense of like, well, okay, well, are the stories, what are the stories that we told? What are the stories we pass on? And what's the reality of those stories? You know, it's so, so you have, I mean, obviously his father goes and fights and dies in Bellawood. Um, and, you know, the Sarge is telling this story about him. But you learn from about Sarge later on and say, well, I wonder how, I wonder how real that story was. Or because we know, we learned that Sarge is very happy to um, spin a yarn if he thinks it's helpful in the moment. Well, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think the other thing it's doing, Sam, is it's blurring that line between lying and myth-making, mm -hmm. right? It, it makes me think of, uh, you know, that line of, uh, of um, you know, the man who shot Liberty Valance, right? You know, that uh, print the legend. Uh, and so what is, you know, what, what, is, what is actually, uh, what's a true myth and, and what's simply a lie that's been told enough times that people begin to believe it and adopt it as kind of a cultural, uh, a cultural lie that then becomes a myth. I think Sturgis is being very canny about that, about how we, how we make these myths and what is actually the origin story and to what degree does it matter what is true and what isn't true. Uh, I mean, this is a film I think that comes out on, it comes out very much on the, on the side of let's tell the truth. But even once you tell the truth, it doesn't necessarily make any difference as to what happens next. Right, right. A couple more things on on here was some things I just thought were funny. The the statue of General Zabritsky, uh, <laughs> and they say like, well, basically the, the the foundry was going out of business or something, so they got a deal on it. Um, <laughs> I just thought that was that was very funny. And then there's a the great moment with. Um, the person who I think steals this movie, one of them is uh, is the mayor Everett Noble. Um, when he's saying, uh, "I question his fitness for office, but I have never once questioned uh, his being a hero," you know, and it's like, <laughs> and, and which is funny because like that's the thing he should be, you know, he yes. he could most question, and you only get the kind of party boss is the only person who's bothering to go to go kind of look into this. <laughs> Um, I also find it interesting thinking about the Marines um, that Woodrow is kind of their gravy train a little bit, right? Like they're penniless at the beginning of this mm -hmm. and, you know, he buys them drinks and then he's clearly the money he's making at the shipyard is, I mean, he has 
maybe a, a low easy cost of living so he's able to like support them and then they're kind of along for the ride we see the marines eating big meals and all so so it, i mean it's almost there is this sense of like if san francisco really is over it in terms of returning soldiers it's like well they're trying to go find a place you know where it's like well we can be celebrated here and we can be treated you know we can we can kind of they um what am i trying to say they benefit from the myth of woodrow <laughs> Uh, almost as much as he does mm -hmm. as they go as they go through there because that's clearly not their experience in San Francisco. Um, it also makes like I was I hadn't thought about this until this morning and I was writing questions. I'm like, why did why don't they go home? Why don't they stick yes. together? Like 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 you know we we which why I love the one Marine um, and this will get us into the sort of cult of mother uh, Bugsy yeah. I think is his name although they're almost never named as you go through who has like the mother obsession mm -hmm. um, and he's it, he's the one who actually uh, kind of trips the wire of the the machinery of the story right because he's the one who goes and makes the phone call and is constantly saying you shouldn't do this to your mother um, and we learn potentially that he's an orphan himself. He doesn't have a family. So the way he, every time Sturgis films that actor, he's always like fawning over um, over Woodrow's mother. And I, I think that guy is, he doesn't say that much, but all of his nonverbals are amazing in this. Yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. He, he's, he's a, a former uh, uh, boxer actually who turned turned actor. Um, and, and, you know, there's always, there's always a question about exactly whether some critic put it, he's kind of behind the team, behind, behind the eight ball or ahead of the crowd. He's, he, and he, he himself, who of course has, um, uh, is angry at Woodrow for lying to his mother. He helps perpetuate the lie as well. So no, nobody's really consistent in that respect. So that was, so the, the, the kind of cult of the mother was one of the big things as I would read about this, that people sort of kept turning to, um, do you have other thoughts on that as a, as a, a theme in this? I mean, we, it, it ties into kind of the, 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 the heroism part of this, but that's sort of the, maybe the flip side, um, home front, uh, myth that we, that we tell or thing we obsess on. Yeah. And I, and I think it's, it's another, it's another place where, um, Sturgis again, he has his cake and he eats it too, because the way the actual character of the mother is handled and Rujo's relationship with her, it's, you know, it's very sweet and, and kind. And there's no kind of, um, there's no kind of undercutting her as an individual or as a character. But at the same time, you get this critique of this kind of unthinking idea that, you know, mothers are to be, are to be worshipped all the time and mothers are, 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 are faultless. So, she comes across both as a real character, but then you've got this kind of archetypal mother that she's being being played against, and he gets to do it kind of both ways. Um, the other the other mother that I love in this movie oh. is uh, Forrest's mother. Yes. Um, she is amazing, and just the like the the interplay between uh, Everett Noble and uh, and his wife is the little shots that they take at each other you know about like um pretending to not be married and how they'd be willing to do that and it's just it's it they are so funny and like in some ways some, sometimes like a character like um like mrs noble is is not like a uh an essential part of the story but adds so much to it every time she walks into a scene i got excited because i knew she was going to say something and what she was going to say was just going to kind of stir the pot in a kind of way 
Yeah, that's she. That's Esther Howard is another 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 actress in Sturgis's uh, stable of of character actors, and uh, she was wonderful. If you remember in Sullivan's Travels, she is the widow that tries to trap Sullivan when he comes to work on work work on her ranch or her farm, and she's uh, she's got she's the one that's got that portrait of the ex husband up on the wall, and the eyes follow them around. So she's only in that you know in Sullivan's Travels for what five or ten minutes, but she's absolutely essential, and she's the same way here. The other big theme that 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 struck me about this was how much this uh, film can be viewed through the lens of like a picture of politics uh, and especially small town politics. Um, we have the big the big kind of opening uh, or the big welcome home scene where uh, Woodrow is kind of used viewed as like this tool for the mayor to like he wants it's like who gets to talk to him first and who gets to do this. Um, but then we see him very quickly get kind of um, drafted into this mayoral race. And the thing that struck me rewatching it, um, and this is a, I feel like such an interesting maybe political truth that uh, that Sturgis is talking about. Is I was listening to Woodrow give the first speech on the porch where he's trying to say like, you know, I'm not fit for this. These men, these are the ones who deserve, you know, and he's, he's absolutely telling the truth and uncovering the lie. And obviously they don't hear him. But what I also realized was like how easy everything can be political rhetoric. Like, like it just like his, his, his trying to uh, make up for this lie just becomes this kind of humility that plays really well politically. It's like everything becomes this e sort of easy political rhetoric. Um, and then everybody gets kind of um, drawn into that, even though the person in front of them is saying, no, <laughs> like, 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 I don't, basically, I don't want this. I don't deserve this. And that's just making them want him more. Well, I, I love. I mean, I, I think uh, I think the great gloss on this is Doc Bissell towards the end, right? When he says, um, "Politics is a very unusual thing, Woodrow. If they want you, they want you. They don't need reasons anymore. They find their own reasons." And I just think about, well, gosh, that can't possibly be relevant to contemporary politics anymore, can it? That they don't need <laughs> reasons. They find their own reasons. I mean, I just think you know, Doc Bissell's got it. Perfectly, because because he represents so many failed politicians, right? People, you, you you say this person has all these great qualifications. He's a person of integrity, or she's a person of integrity, et cetera, et cetera. And you put that person up in front of the voters, and for whatever reason, you know, we watch this every year, uh, every four years during the primary process for for president, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but sometimes I've looked at the slate of nine or ten people, and I think, well, here's the one that would really make a really good president. Guess what, that person doesn't even get out of Iowa. Um, and it's hard to know why voters make up their minds. And a lot of it, it seems like they've got their reasons and then they've got their kind of post hoc ex ex explanations. Um, of course, then Doc continues by saying, it's just like when a good woman wants a man, right? And uh, Mary says, or, or, or Libby rather says, that's right, you don't need reasons. Although they're probably there, <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Well, and, and and Bissell, yeah, Bissell just flat out says in the in the um the living room, he says, "I've got everything but popularity." <laughs> it's exactly, like, exactly. which is interesting because that like he's not being humble there. He's like, "I would be perfect for this, except nobody likes me." <laughs> and, and 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 maybe, and I don't really know enough about Al Smith, but maybe he's kind of the Al Smith character in that respect. I don't know. You know, Al Smith ran for president what four times and just. Mm -hmm. kept 
kept getting beaten every time. And I don't know if he was an admiral worse in the way Doc Bissell was, but Doc Bissell certainly represents a kind, a, a, a type of politician. The person who should have gotten elected, but never will. We just have to mention the great joke of when, when uh, they said, we'd like you to replace Doc Bissell. And he says, I don't know anything about being a veterinary. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's so typical of Sturgis. And, um, and to me, it's, it's one of the ways in which um, his kind of humor is, uh, is very Python-esque, right? Because you think, and, and, and Coen Brothers-ish, because you think you're going down one route with a, with a joke and you actually end up going down the other, the other route. So you end up with kind of two jokes in one. It's, well, because, yeah, because it's a great moment where ev- the viewer is on board with what's being said and you didn't realize that one of your main characters didn't follow everybody else down that line of thinking and they say something else and you're like, whoa, okay. Um, <laughs> Which is another reason why the movie works, because because through the Eddie Bracken character, through Woodrow, you're constantly being told this is absolutely ridiculous. So so Sturgis enables you to kind of both be involved and at the same time realize you're part of an elaborate an elaborate construction, uh, and you're both going along with it, and yet you're seeing through it at the same time. It's it's a great it's a great experience as a, as, a, as an audience. Yes. I, I also think that, that you end up, you know, thinking about this movie politically like it is an act. It's a pretty good satire of um, kind of uh, <laughs> political populism you know, as sort of as we're talking about. And and even this moment where, you know, towards the end when you have the Sarge wa- um, kind of marching to um, to Woodrow at the train station and this whole mob behind them singing. Um, and it, 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 I mean, is this 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 line between. Um, uh, you know, populism and mob rule, <laughs> like in a benign way, like you, this is, this is a pretty benign mob, but it's a mob, right. Who's just uh-huh. like, this is what, like we, we are running this town. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's, it's such an interesting picture because it isn't, uh, it isn't a venomous satire, but it's definitely a satire to dig into and to think about and that, that causes you to ask questions. Exactly. The other big theme, and it's it's all over what we've talked about. This um, is is just the idea of truth and lies, you know, and this fits into some of these these myths, things like this. Um, uh, so that I I think it's interesting that uh, there's moments where <laughs> Everett Noble he's such a windbag, but <laughs> yes. the things he's saying are. Like he actually makes a lot of sense at certain moments. I mean, he, it, it's it's done in such a comical way. But he's like, there's this moment where he's like, I que- where he says, I I question his fitness as mayor. It's like, yeah, everyone should que- question his fitness as mayor. Like there, he has no qualifications, and he's you know, and he talks about how um, you know how the how has how has the war prepared him for for running a small town in California? Mm-hmm. Like he's like he's been doing this. And and even if you buy the myth that he was successful as at that, what does that have to do with running a town? Now, um, the 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 funny part is you could also spin that onto Everett Noble and say, okay, what does running a uh, chair factory have to do with running a town? Right? It's like it's like like what makes somebody fit for office? But he's like, he's basically saying, shouldn't we have somebody who's older and more experienced? Wouldn't that make sense? He's almost making the case for Doc Bissell right there as well, you know. Um, but he knows Doc Bissell is somebody he will beat. And and we are, uh, we should also note, we are only eight years away from electing a war hero as president. I so, thought a lot about and, that. Yeah, so I, and, I, and I think there's always, you know, we, and we did that before, right? We 
we have a way of wanting generals, you know, to be to be president, as with uh, as with Grant after the Civil War. Um, so I think that you know that's another thing that Sturgis is. I'm, I'm not sure he's foretelling or thinking about uh, Eisenhower becoming president, but again, he's thinking about that idea of what 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 actually qualifies a person to be in a leading uh, in a position of political leadership, and and there really isn't an answer in this film, right? I mean, there, there it really isn't clear. What makes anybody the the right choice for mayor? Except this is what the people have decided, and so I think there's also a bit, a very a, a, a very gentle thumbing of the nose at democracy in some respects. Mm -hmm. Because um, uh, I mean, Sturgis isn't depicting everybody as uh, as gullible or corrupt, but it doesn't seem as though people have a great deal of insight in the film. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and even when you get to the end, there's another great line at the end that I think Judge Dennis says, you know, after the they've met up with Woodrow at the train station, the whole crowd is there and they're they're telling him, yes, even though none of this is true, we still want you. And uh, Judge Dennis says, um, what would we want a, a soldier for anyway? <laughs> it's like, we still want you. We wanted you because you were a, a soldier and a war hero. Well, now that you're not that, it's like, well, we still want you. Why would we want to? So, so I mean, he's basically saying whatever it was saying before is like, well, why does that make you fit? And it's like, why does anything, you know, why does anything uh, make you fit in that way? Well, you know, you you, you could say, uh, you know, to be fair, you could say, well, they, they want him because he's honest. Right. But, 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 but the only way you can tell he's honest is because he tells you he's been lying. Right. So it's like that's that's not that's not actually a great achievement to 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 actually own up to the fact that you've been telling a lie all along. And of course, that leads me to another another point about the film, um, which is that Woodrow is a character without agency. I mean, he he is, a, and that's one of the reasons why I think Eddie Bracken is perfect for this role, um, and because Eddie, I think he's great as a as a kind of a victim. And, and what I love about the film is that. Even at the point where he tries to take over agency, when he comes up with his own line, okay, so I'll pretend I've been called back in the service. And for about 10 minutes, he thinks he's in charge again. And then that gets taken, taken, taken away from him. So I think in a way, this is, um, he is Sturgis's version of the little tramp, of uh, 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 you know, the chaplain character who's constantly being put upon and constantly having uh, the forces of the world act upon him and trying to find some way to gain agency of, of, of his own. Uh, and I just love the way that uh, Woodrow just kind of keeps constantly getting swept away uh, by forces around him over which he has no control. Uh, Bosley Crowther has a great line. He says uh, that, that Eddie Bracken gives a squarely hilarious imitation of a thunderstruck human football. <laughs> <laughs> That it is just sort of like he's kind of passed around. He and 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 I mean, there's a lot of over the top kind of uh, comedic takes that he's doing with his face, but they're all great. I, I I've never seen this person before, and I I think he's great in this. Yeah, I think I think he's perfectly cast for for the for this particular role. You don't you don't really want a stronger actor. You really want somebody who can convincingly play the the, the victim, and and you really do believe. I mean. It, it does seem as though the forces around him are really beyond his control. I mean, there, there's never a point where I think, well, look, just just tell everybody what's going on. And you, you, he really never, you really never feel as though he actually has a genuine opportunity to, to do that. So you, you also sympathize with him at the same time. He's kind, well, of a, he's kind of a Woody Allen nevish, too, to make another connection. 
Yeah, and I think you know the the start of the movie helps with that because he also plays forlorn really well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when when you see him at that bar, like you don't necessarily expect that this is where this movie is headed. You just see this guy who is deeply down and depressed sitting at the the edge of the bar, um, and he tries to do a nice thing for some people, and his life gets turned upside down three times. <laughs> Um, we talked a lot about the oh what one more just good good uh, political line. The Sarge tells um, tells Woodrow at some point uh, they they aren't lies. They're campaign promises. People expect them <laughs> about the stories that he's telling. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we talked about Eddie Bracken. Are there other performances that you want to highlight? Uh, I think this, like we said, this is this is full of of sort of great small performances, lots of different characters. Yeah, I think I think we really touched on on, on on most of them. And I already said something about William Demarest at the beginning in terms of having a large role. I guess, you know, the other small performance that I really love is Arthur Hoyt as as the as the Reverend Upperman. Um, and I and I love the church scene because I love when he stands in the pulpit and says, "Now, now, normally on Sunday he says I have to scold you a little bit because that's my job." I just I I, I just I just happen to, to to love that. And of course, this is the second the second of these post-war films we've seen that has a, a, a bit of a a bit of a church scene. I mean, uh, the the wedding in uh, the best years of our lives was not in a church, but it was a it was a religious ceremony. And so this is the second time we get a kind of quasi-religious ceremony. But this time we have the burning of the mortgage, and I just I just love his 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 performance. Uh, anything else you want to talk about with this movie? Well. What I want to talk about is connected with this movie, but it's also a little bit of uh, more on, on, on Preston Sturgis. Uh, Sturgis, uh, and, and you can listen and see how much of this applies to this film. Sturgis said there were 11 keys to box office success. Um, a, a pretty girl is better than an ugly one. Uh, a leg is better than an arm. A bedroom is better than a living room. An arrival is better than a departure. A birth is better than a death. A chase is better than a chat. A dog is better than a landscape. A kitten is better than a dog. A baby is better than a kitten. A kiss is better than a baby. A pratfall is better than anything. <laughs> That's and, fantastic. And, and, and one, of the, one of the things that Sturgis said about this film, and I think having seen almost all of Sturgis's films, um, some of them several times, I would agree with this. He says he thinks it's the one film of his that has the least wrong with it. And I, and I think that's actually right, because almost every Sturgis film has these moments where I think, oh, I wish he hadn't included that, or I wish that hadn't gone on quite so long. But this film, I don't feel that way about this film. I feel this is the closest thing to kind of a perfect, a perfectly constructed uh, and executed film that, that, that Sturgis made. And it's gone way up in my estimation um, as a result. Yeah, like I said, I think when I first, I think it's possible to watch this and just feel like it's kind of this light thing that's funny and um, and very very funny, but that you don't have to <clears throat> you don't have to think that much about. But I think there, but I think there is a that that allows there to be so much to it. There isn't. Um, I think with, with even with Sullivan's Travels, there's moments when you feel the message hitting you a little harder. Um, and mm-hmm. this one, I this one, I feel like there is there's a lot of message there. Uh, if you want to, if you want to see it and want to look for it, but I feel like it doesn't hammer you over the head um, so much that you uh, that it takes you out of the comedy of it. Yeah, no, I, that's true. I think you could come out of this film and say that was a laugh, and and not think about it any, any, anymore. Um, I should also mention that some of the titles he had in mind earlier were "Praise the Lord" and "Pass the Ammunition." 
um, Once Upon a Hero and The Little Marine. But I think he ended up with the perfect title. Yes, absolutely. I just also need to, uh, I need to just quote um, the uh, the mayor one more time. I love when he first finds out that Woodrow is is going to be the nominee, and he says, "Well, his name's not on the ballot." And he exp- <laughs> explained, "Well, that he's a write-in candidate. That's what that line's for." And he's just like, "No, no, no. That's for the date. That's got to be for something else. That can't be for just like like not understanding or or wanting to understand the uh, the democracy." The other part is that is one of the great scenes is when he is dictating his speech and they're talking about the word both and they both do it to him. <laughs> but he's like, I'm not running on a platform of grammar. Yeah. He's got that great line, but I, I let my grammar slop over a little. A, a, yeah. A little yeah. No, I mean, th- yeah, that's the thing about it, Sam. I mean, you can just, I mean, almost every scene has got these wonderful quotable, quotable lines. Uh, anything else you want to say with this movie? No, I just want to tell people go watch some more Preston Sturgis. So, what would be the what would be the next? The if somebody was like me and they've seen Sullivan's Travels, they've seen uh, this. What would be the next Preston Sturgis movie to watch? Well, I mean, I I have a I love Palm Beach Story, um, but if you like Eddie Bracken, then do uh, Miracle of Morgan's Creek. You can't go wrong with either one of those. All right. Well, we're going to take the week off next week uh, because of Christmas and New Year's. Um, I'm going to be doing a little bit of traveling. Uh, but what do you have for us in two weeks, Barrett? Well, I think the the, the natural follow-up to this film is uh, 1997's Wag the Dog. Um, because, you know, I, I love the theme of technology as a human amplifier. Uh, and so how technology allows us to deceive even more effectively than just barefoot based lying. So I haven't seen Wag the Dog since I saw it in the theaters in 1997. So I'm kind of eager to get back to it, but I think it's kind of a good companion. So uh, we're kind of staying with a war theme, but again, for a little bit of a different perspective. I am very excited. I also have, I think I saw this in theaters and I think, and I'm certain that's the only time that I've seen it. Um, so I am very excited. Uh, this is set in a particular moment in the Clinton era. It sort of it came out just at the, just at the perfect moments to even comment on things that feel like they were in the news in the moment. So very excited to talk about that. Barrett, thank you so much for recommending this film. Um, like, you, like I said at the beginning, I think I've fallen in love with Preston Sturgis and uh, I over break. I'm going to see if I can watch another movie or two of his um, just because I just want to go back to, I want to go back to that dialogue and I, I, I just really, really enjoy it. So thank you so much for recommending this. That's all the time that we have, but we will be back in two weeks to talk about wag the dog in the video store.